You're listening to a message provided by Antioch Bible Baptist Church in Gladstone, Missouri. We intend this to be a helpful resource to you as you grow in your walk with Jesus Christ. This is intended especially for those who are unable to attend our worship gatherings and therefore were unable to hear the teaching of God's Word. This should not replace your gathering with our church as a member. If you're checking us out for the first time and are looking for a church to visit, we hope that you enjoy this content and that it impacts you personally. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles today, I'd love for you to pull them out or your phone or your uh, iPad and go to Matthew chapter 18. I'm not going to have the uh, scriptures on the screen today, um, so love for you to have your Bible out as we work through Matthew 18 today, so you can be following along. Uh, specifically, when we get to the end, uh, Jesus is going to tell another parable, and I would love for you to be able to follow along with me in your text as we work through uh, that parable. So thank you for getting your Bible out, getting ready to go. Matthew uh, chapter 18 is where we're going to spend our time today. One quick thing before we get into the message today at the end of the service and moving forward for the next season, we're going to end our service together by singing. And so we've done different things throughout the last few years. Um, you know, the last year we've been at the end of the service, we'd all stand and we would quote the, the verses that we're working through and are growing in Christ. And we would do that for a month at a time. This year, as we come to 2024, I'm so thankful for Clint's leadership as our worship pastor, how he thinks through the songs, he thinks through the order of service. And so we often have conversations about the order of service and how, it, how, how it's going, how it's working. And uh, as we finished up the scripture memory verses, um, we thought it would be good to bring back uh, this idea of singing at the end in response to the message, in response to the word. So just know when I finish today, we still got some time together because we're going to sing together to finish out our time, and uh, we'll be doing that for the season ahead here. And again, grateful for our worship team, grateful for Pastor Clint and his leadership. Um, uh, so, so thankful for them. If you were asked the question, what makes a great church? How would you answer that question? You don't have to answer out loud, obviously. Um, but if somebody were to come up to you and say, can you tell me what makes a great church? What would be the things that would come to your mind? I would propose to you today that probably the things that Jesus talks about in Matthew 18 aren't typically the things that come to our mind when we think of a great church. And yet in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus lays out for us what greatness looks like in the kingdom of heaven. You will remember that Matthew 18 is framed in the first verse when it says, and at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So this question that the disciples asked Jesus frames the rest of Matthew at 18. And we see Jesus' fourth teaching section in the book of Matthew based off this question that they ask. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? 
We know that the kingdom of heaven is those who submit to the rule and reign of Christ in their heart and in their life. And there's this already not yet idea of the kingdom of heaven. Christ rules and reigns in our heart through the Holy Spirit. That has already happened. We are a gathering. The church is a gathering of people who've submitted to the rule and reign of Christ in their heart and life. That's what we are. And so this is already happening, but there's a day coming when Christ will set up his physical rule and reign. And so this is why I'm using the phrase six marks of a great church because Jesus is giving us what it looks like to be great in the kingdom of heaven. And as followers of Jesus, we are already a part of this kingdom of heaven through the church family. We are a group of people that have submitted to the rule and reign of Christ in our lives. And so in the text, Matthew 18, we see six marks of a great church. The six marks are as follows. Humility, verses 3 and 4. Hospitality, verse 5. Protection, verses 6 through 9. Love, verses 10 through 14. Restoration, verses 15 through 20. And forgiveness, verses 21 through 35. So last week in the first service of last Sunday, we were able to get through three. The, the, the second service, we were only able to get through two, so we'll have to do a little bit of tweaking for the next service. But for the first service, let me recap for you the three marks that we looked at last week. The first thing that we saw was humility. And Jesus says that no one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless they become like a child. And then in verse 4, he says, whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This humility that Jesus is talking about here is a dependence on God. And he says you can't enter the kingdom of heaven unless you become like a child. Unless there's this humility in which you realize that you can't do this life on your own. You can't do the future, eternal life on your own. You need a savior. You're dependent on God. And Jesus says humility is a part of coming into the kingdom, but it's also a part of being a part of the kingdom. As you have received, Colossians 2.5, Paul says, as you have received Christ, you walk in him. So as we received Christ in humility, we walk in humility with this dependence on God. Then in verse 5, we saw this idea of hospitality. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And men, remember, he's using the word child to refer to those who are followers of Jesus Christ or followers of God, right? These are, are the, this is a, a word picture for them to see that this is what you should become like. So he continues that theme with this idea of child. And he says, whoever receives, that word receives means to welcome. It means to show hospitality. The most hospitable place in the community should be the church of Jesus Christ. Because as we receive each other, as we welcome each other, as we serve each other, we are doing it as if we are serving Christ. So the person that you are sitting next to, the person that is sitting around you who has submitted themselves to the rule and reign of Christ in their life, you are to show hospitality to them. No matter if they live in the same neighborhood that you live in, that they believe the same things about politics that you believe, they go to the same schools that you go to. We are to show hospitality towards one another. We're to show kindness and be welcoming towards each other. 
Then we saw in verses 6 through 9 this idea of protection. Where Jesus says, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. And in this moment, Jesus is talking about us looking out for each other. That what makes a person great in the kingdom of heaven, what makes a church great is people who are looking out for each other. That as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but all things don't build up. So I make decisions that are based off protecting my brothers and sisters in Christ. Not just what's best for me, but what is best for the community, the church that I am a part of, so that I don't lead people into sin through the decisions that I am making. He goes on in verses 8 and 9, he says, if you're going to get radical about helping others, also think about your own heart. And that if there's sin in your life that is leading you away from this relationship with God, then you need to get radical with that. Cut your hand off, right? That Pluck your eye out. That kind of idea that we get radical with sin. We're protecting our heart as we follow Christ. So those were the first three that we looked at last week. Humility hospitality, and protection. Then this week, let's look at the last three, love, restoration, and forgiveness. Look at verses 10 through 14. Jesus says to them, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. That word despise is see that you don't look down on any follower of me. Anyone who's coming, we don't look down on each other. That's the idea of the word despise. And then he says this, for I tell you that in heaven there are angels always, that in heaven there are angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. In this moment, Jesus is talking about his love for us and that there are angels always at his beckoning call to go and do anything that he wants them to do on behalf of his children. You've heard the idea of a guardian angel, right? Like people have guardian angels. I don't know that the Bible speaks to guardian angels, but what we do know is that the angels do serve at the Lord's beckoning. And that's what he's saying. I love my children enough that the angels are watching my face And when I say, hey, you need to go down and minister, you need to go down and help, I can send them down to help. Picture Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 when he's out in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights and he's being tempted. What does God do for his son after the temptation is over? He sends angels to minister to him. As we're reading through the New Testament here in the first 30 days of the year, we're in the book of Acts. And as we're going through the book of Acts, you see the Lord using angels to comfort and to minister to people. And this is the same thing, that he loves us enough that he sends angels to protect us, to, provide, to encourage us in those moments of our life. This is how much that he loves us. Now, you'll notice... It goes, my text does anyways, the ESV, goes from verse 10 to verse 12. So is this just a 
uh, malfunction, right, of the printer who accidentally didn't put in verse 11 of Matthew chapter 18. Well, Matthew chapter 18 and verse 11, the, the majority of the early text did not have verse 11 in it. So the later text of scripture had verse 11 in there. So the ESV translators chose when they were putting this together to take out verse 11 because it wasn't in the majority of the early text of scripture. So what's the verse that's missing there? Well, the verse that is missing there is actually found in Luke 19.10. And the verse that is missing is, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who were lost. All right, great verse. Luke 19.10, it fits good in there. It could fit here. It doesn't mean it's not the word of God. It's just saying it wasn't in the majority text. So these translators chose, as they put together this version of the Bible, to take that out. So just FYI on that when verse 11 is not there. They didn't mess it up. They chose in this text, translation, to take that out. Verse 12 then, and you can understand why those who put it in there would put it in there. Because listen to verse 12 through 14. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety and nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish." So you can see why verse 11 would have popped in there, right? Why that, that would make sense. The Son of Man came to seek and to save those who were lost. But again, Luke 19.10 is a good place. So Jesus goes on here and he says, I, I want you to picture this love like a, a shepherd who leaves the 90 and 9 and goes after the one who is straying. Now, in context... This is not someone who is not a believer, right? We're talking about little children here. So he's talking about believers in Jesus. And what has happened is one of the believers has gotten lost. So I think a word that would probably be a better translation in verse 14 is when it says in, that it says, so that it is not the will of my father who's in heaven that one of these little ones should perish we think of perish, our thoughts go to hell, right? Like that's what we think of when we hear the word perish. I think a better translation would be the word lost in this moment. So one of the sheep has gotten lost. They've gotten off course. And the father is willing, the shepherd is willing to leave the 90 and 9 to go after that one who has gotten off course. This is a love that the father has for his kids is that when he sees one of them go off track, he's willing to leave the comfort of the 90 and nine and go pursue that one. This is a love that is a pursuing love. And what he's calling us to do is that we should have the same kind of love for each other. A love that is a pursuing love a love that is action, that when we see someone in our fold, our family, get off track, lose their way, 
that we as a church family would leave the comfort of the 90 and 9 and we would go after that one. That it would be a pursuing love. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which says, love bears all things, love believes all things, love hopes all things, love endures all things. This is the kind of love that is being modeled for us that Jesus is saying, this is what makes a great church, is that you pursue one another with love. So the one that we see fall off course, we go after that one because they're a part of the family. They're a child of God. We don't look down on them. We don't despise them. We go after them to bring them back to the family of God, to be a part of the family of God. How do we do that? Well, verse 15 through 20 helps us understand how do we have this pursuing love of someone who's gotten off the way, who's lost track, who, who's, who's fallen away from following the Lord. And we see this restoration in Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Here it goes, verse 15. If your brother sins against you. Again, in early manuscripts, the word against you wasn't in there. It said just if your brother sins, go and tell him his fault. But the older manuscripts add in this against you. That it's a personal, and you could sort of see in the text why they would add this against you. But we in Galatians 6.1 says, if you see someone caught in a transgression, in a sin, you who are spiritual to go to that one, right? You're to go to them and, and, and plead with them to come back to the Lord. And so we see in Scripture, it can be just a brother who's sinning or a brother who is sinning against you. This is the context. So what does pursuing love look like? Here's what you do. You go tell them their fault, his fault, and between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you've gained a brother. So when we see someone who's gotten off the path, that one that the shepherd says, I'm going to go after that one. If we see that one who has gotten off path, we are to go to them one-on-one. -on -one. We're to go to them and say, listen, I see this either in you have sinned against me or I see this in your life. You have gotten off course. And, and the Bible says you go to them, you, you tell them, and if they listen to you, you have gained your brother. And he's using the term brother here, but we could throw in sister as well. And so he says the goal is restoration. That if someone's sinning, if someone's gone off the, the path, that the goal is to get them back in the fold. The goal is for them to be restored in this relationship. And the first step in this pursuing love, the first step in this restoration is that we go to them one-on-one, -on -one, that we go to them alone. We bring it before them and say, listen, I, you did this and it hurt my heart, you sinned against me, or I see this sin in your life that you've been caught in, that you're going down, down deeper into. And I just, I'm coming to you with a heart of, I desire to see you restored. I desire to see you right with God. So he says, verse 15, you go one on one first or, or go alone. Then verse 16, if, if the person doesn't respond to that, if he does not listen, take one or two others also with you. 
that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So he says, first you go alone and try to get that right. Keep it private, right? It's between you and that person. You're working through that. If after time that doesn't work out and you've done all that you can to live it peaceably with all men, if it doesn't work out, then you get somebody with you one or two people with you, and you go before them. This is taking us back to Deuteronomy chapter 19 and this idea of witnesses, right? That you have to have two or three witnesses to confirm something. That's why throughout the book of Matthew, uh, the, the Mount of Transfiguration, you have Moses and Elijah there, right? They're witnesses. You have this time. It's never just me and Jesus, right? There's always witnesses there confirming things that are happening in Jesus' life. Well, the same thing comes to this restoration process is that you need to have two or three witnesses that go with you and say, this is something we're working through. Can you help us with this situation? So you take two or three people with you. That's the second step. The third step is found in verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them. So now you've got two or three witnesses. You went alone. You went with two or three. And if he still refuses to listen to you, then it says to tell it to the church. This is the second time that we see the word church in the book of Matthew. Matthew 16 and verse 18, I will build my church, Jesus says. Now again, Jesus uses this term church. So he says, if you go one-on-one privately and they don't respond, then you take somebody with you, two or three people with you, or one or two people with you. If they don't respond to that, that, that correction then, then you take it before the church. You bring it before this called out assembly of people. At, at Antioch, when we would bring something before the church, some of this, and again, we, we have this sort of outlined in our bylaws, but we would typically take it before the deacons. The deacons represent the church, and so this is a way for us to take it before the church. Now, part of that's because we have a 1,000 members, and so to get a 1,000 members in the room and to share with them all that is going on as we deal with things of restoration, we think the deacon body is a good representation of our church body, and we bring it before them. Now, there is some cases, and we've had this happen in our church, that are more public in nature, aka a pastor. If a pastor were to fall, that would come before the whole church family, right? If we needed to get something done because it's more public in nature. But as we're dealing with things within the church, the deacon body is where we would land with this idea of taking it before the church. And if you take it before the church, so this third step, and they still don't respond to that, then it says this, this is the consequence. Let him then be to you, in the end of verse 17, as a Gentile and a tax collector. He says, if you've went to them one-on-one, you've taken somebody with you, it's been brought before the church, and they still are digging their heels in, then we're to treat them as an unbeliever, we're to treat them as a Gentile or a tax collector. Do you feel the weight of that? You should. Because it is the the seriousness of which Jesus takes his church. That's why he says earlier, if your hand offends you, cut it off. 
If your eye offends you, pluck it out. Why? Because we have to take sin seriously in the church because it represents Christ. Because we are a family that represents the rule and reign of Christ in our life. And if I'm trying to rule my own heart and life and do whatever I want to do, that doesn't represent Christ well. This, this is not the only place. There's other passages of Scripture. And, and I, I say these things with a heavy heart. Right? Matthew or Romans chapter 16 In verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Paul says, avoid them. If you go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 14, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them that he may be ashamed There's a weightiness that comes with being a member of Antioch Bible Baptist Church. And when we get off course, we go to each other one-on-one. We take somebody with with you if they're not responding to that. Then we bring it to the church. And if they don't even respond to the church, then we treat them like an unbeliever. We we see this, an example for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Look there with me, 1 Corinthians 5. Chapter 5, as we know, the Corinthian church had a lot of issues, and here was one sexual issue that was going on. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, so you get some weird stuff going on. Verse 2, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though I am absent in the body, I am present in the spirit. As if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Why? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You turn them over, you you treat them like an unbeliever so that they will lead to restoration, that they will feel the weight of their sin, the weight of going away from the Lord. Go alone, go with someone, go to the church, and if they still don't respond, you treat them like an unbeliever. Here's what I've found at Antioch. Oftentimes, people leave the church before we get to go to the church. That when they go to one-on-one, when you start taking somebody with them, they usually will run from the church. Won't respond to text, won't respond to phone calls, right? And what are they doing? They're running from the discipline of the Lord that he's coming after them with mercy and grace to try to restore them to fellowship with the church, to fellowship with Christ, and instead of, and and pushing into that, they run from it. May that be a warning to us that if we ever have a brother or sister that comes to us one-on-one and says, I see this in your life, 
May we not dig our heels in and be like, ah, you're the wrong one. They have to get somebody to come with them because you can't see the hardness of your own heart. Then may you respond with gratitude. And again, I get it. Sin hardens our heart. It blinds us to our own sin. I understand all of those things. But I think this is a warning for us as a church to not run from restoration. To not push it off on the, it's the other person's fault. If she would have been a better wife, if he would have been a better husband, if they wouldn't have done this or they wouldn't have done that. No. Respond to the grace of God that is coming towards you through a person to restore you to right relationship with God and right relationship with the body of Christ. Verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bound on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What Jesus does in these next three verses is he gives them a promise of those who are seeking to restore. So in verse 18, he says, I'm giving you my authority. What's bound on earth shall be bound in heaven. Loosed on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You remember Jesus talked about this in Matthew 16 and verse 18. And the idea is if the person is not responding to the church, he's given us his authority. It's not, we're not coming on our own authority and our own power and our own strength. We're coming under the authority of Christ and he's given us the authority to bound things on earth and to bound things on heaven. And the idea is that if we see in this person a, a response that is hard-heartedness, then maybe they are not a believer. Maybe they have not responded to the grace of God in their life. So what's bound on earth is bound in heaven, just like in Matthew 16, when they're spreading the gospel. And the idea is what is bound on earth is bound in heaven, is that as we spread the gospel, how people respond to that is true here, and it'll be true in heaven, whether they reject it or accept it. Jesus says the same thing is true when you're seeking to restore a brother. If they run from the church, rather than to the church, then maybe they're not a believer to begin with. Verse 19, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. This is not Jesus talking about prayer in this moment. This is Jesus talking in the same context about restoration, and he's saying in verse 19, you have my support. As you have my authority to do this, I promise this, uh, you also have my support. That whatever you ask, right, as you're working through this, that I am supporting you, I am with you. Then in verse 20, he promises his presence. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Jesus says he gives us his presence. I am with you as you are seeking to restore your brother or sister in Christ. That's pretty heavy stuff, isn't it? So, so how, how do we restore a person? Can I just give you two words that I, I would encourage you with? The two words that when I think of restoring a person that I see, like we saw the shepherd who goes after the one who's lost their way. 
There's two things, two words that I would encourage you with. Time and tears. Time and tears. In Matthew 18, we don't see, we see a path, but we don't see a timeline. He doesn't say, when you go to your brother a month later, go, you know, right? Like there's no time frame. And so the idea is that it takes time. Isn't that how the Lord works in your life? I don't one day wake up and I'm not struggling with a sin anymore. If I've been struggling with a sin for a long time, it usually takes time for me and my own heart to work through that. Especially when Ruth tells me what it is, right? Like, because I got pride in my heart. And I don't want to do what she tells me my problem is, right? She's the problem. And it takes time for the Holy Spirit, aka Ruth, just kidding. Is that's wrong, isn't it, hon? I shouldn't do that. I'll be in tr- You guys don't know what it's like, man. I get in trouble so much. I guess if I just would learn to keep my mouth shut, it would be good. But I don't typically respond right the first time, and it takes time for the Holy Spirit to work in my heart. And so this is not you confront somebody the next day, you take somebody with you, the next day we're going to the deacon board and saying, here's somebody who's under church discipline. Sometimes it's years of just knocking at that hard heart. But I also would say, and, and here, here I, I'll go there. I'll, I want to read Galatians 6.1 to you. Why I say time and also tears. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Listen, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. That's tears. That's understanding that the person you're catching eyes with could be you. And so if there's this sense in which, yeah, I got to call out people's sin. Yeah, purify the church. I just don't know that's the right heart. Because there ought to be a sense of, God, you've been so gracious and you've given me time. Right? You didn't strike me dead after I didn't get it. But also there should be a sense in which there's a tear coming down our eye when we're looking that person in the eye and saying, man, I don't wanna have to do this, but I love you enough and I want our church to be a great church that doesn't turn a blind eye to sin and I wanna come to you privately and just say, I see this in your life. If we're gonna restore people, may we do it with time and with tears. Then, Fittingly, Jesus ends his last teaching section with forgiveness. Peter comes to him and says to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? So we're going back right to verse 15. Your brother sins against you. You go through this restoration process. Now Peter's like, well, how often do we have to go through that, right? How many times do we have to forgive? 
Peter says as many as seven times. So these little private meetings, do I only have to do seven of those with the person and then I'm good and can be like, I don't have to forgive anymore. Here's what's funny about this is that the rabbis, the teachers of Jesus, they taught that you go to a person three times, you can forgive them three times and after that you're off the hook, right? So sort of the three strikes and you're out rule. That's what the rabbis, the teachers taught of that day. So you can think Peter, and we just, because we know Peter's probably like, I'm really good right now because I'm saying not three like the teachers. I'm saying seven, right? Doubling it plus one. So I'm really going over the top by saying we should forgive people seven times. And look at how Jesus responds responds to Peter, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Then Jesus goes and says, here's another parable of an unforgiving servant. Follow along with me and we will finish up. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle one of one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents was the most extreme number that you could give in this context. So today we would say this servant owed zillions of dollars. Okay? That, that's the idea of 10,000 talents. It was more in thousands of lifetimes than this servant could pay back. He owed him zillions of dollars. And since, verse 24, and when he began to settle, one of his brought, brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, verse 25, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. There's no way that the servant could have paid him everything, but he's begging for the mercy of the king. Verse 27, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. That's incredible. He owed him zillions of dollars. And in this moment, when the servant falls on his knees and asks for forgiveness or ask if he could pay him back, he forgave him of all his debt. Verse 28, the same servant went out and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, this is nothing in comparison to the zillions of dollars. This hundred denarii would have been basically a half a year wage for them. They would get paid about one denarii for every time that they worked. So this hundred is about a half a, a year's pay right? versus zillions of dollars. All right, This guy owes him very little comparatively. And he seizes this guy and begins to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. It sort of sounds like the same way that he had just responded to his master. But look at how the servant responds. He refuses and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. So he throws him in a debtor's prison and says, you're not gonna get out of prison until you had your debt paid in full. And when his fellow servant saw that he had, this had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. 
Then his master summons him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. The weight of what Jesus says in verse 35 is that if you don't forgive, then maybe you haven't been forgiven. Just like we would say of the one who's caught in sin, if they continue to sin, then maybe they're not a believer. If you continue to not forgive, then maybe you're not a part of the family of God either. To forgive in this context is to release the person from punishment of their debt and to show them undeserved mercy. We are the servant in the story who owed the king a zillion dollars that we could never repay. But God in his mercy and his love, he demonstrated that for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now through faith in Jesus Christ, we have been forgiven of our sins. And so Paul says in Ephesians 4.32 to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. How, Paul, as God in Christ forgave you. What makes a great church is not its kids' ministry it's student ministry, it's young adult ministry, groups ministry, buildings, budgets, butts, right? How many people attend? What makes a great church, according to Jesus in Matthew 18, is kingdom citizens who walk in humility, who show hospitality, who protect one another, who love one another, who restore each other, and who forgive. Let me end my time by asking you some questions to see if we are hitting the marks of a great church. And Clint and your team, if you guys want to go ahead and come on forward, I'll work through these quickly. We can pray and respond in singing together. Here's the, the six marks. Now let's look at the six questions quickly for us to examine our hearts. When it comes to humility, are we living together? with dependence on Christ? Is there a sense, and as we as a church, I'm not talking about you, okay? I'm talking about we, together. Is there a dependence on Christ? That when people see Antioch from the outside, they see a, a group of people that say, we can't do this life apart from Christ. Almost, they're childish there. They're so dependent on the Lord that it just, it's different. Are we that kind of people? Are we serving each other as if we were serving Christ? Not just the people we want to serve, but within the context of our church, are we serving each other no matter who it is? No matter whether they're in our circle, they like the things that we like, they do the things that we do, are we serving each other? Because if we do, we're serving Christ. When it comes to protection, are we looking out for each other when it comes to temptation and sin? 
As, are we thinking through the decisions that we're making to think not just about, is this a protection for my own heart, but am I protecting my brother and sister in Christ so that they don't fall into sin? Then love, are we pursuing each other when we get off course? Is there a sense in which when we see family go off course or a child get off course that we as a church pursue them, we go after them, we, we love them back to the fold? Then restoration are we restoring each other when we do sin are we looking to restore to gain that brother and sister in christ and finally forgiveness are we forgiving each other as we have been forgiven by christ these are the things that when jesus looks out and says what is greatness in the kingdom of heaven what is greatness in the church these are the things that come to Jesus' mind. Father, thank you for your word. What a challenging message today from Matthew 18. I pray that we would be a people that represent you well. As we close today by singing this song, Be Thou My Vision, I pray that you would be our vision as we leave because this is your church and we want to represent you well to the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. You're always welcome at Antioch. If you desire more information, please go to AntiochBBC.org. That's AntiochBBC.org. God's best to you.